We are in a series on the Gospel of Matthew, and we now have progressed down through the Beatitudes, and we are in a section uh, that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, it can't simply be external. It has to be internal. It has to start in the heart. And your righteousness to exceed them, and includes the way you think. It always starts with our thinking, our thought life, that produces actions. So let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we will proceed to look at and explain why I'm taking a pause here uh, to uh, expand on the uh, topic of uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This will be part one this morning, part two next week, and possibly a part three, depend upon how uh, much progress I make. Dylan will uh, speak to us on... uh, the Lord's Day after Thanksgiving and bring us a Thanksgiving message, so we'll pause for that. Lord, we look we look to heaven. Thank you for your word. Thank you a sure, solid, reliable word from heaven not only regarding the answer for sin found in Jesus Christ and faith in him, but also you have not left us to wander around in sin as believers. You have given us a sure word from heaven. You've broken the power of indwelling sin. So help us to use the means of grace so that we're not left wondering about and dishonoring you through sinful lives. Give us greater holiness, greater godliness. Make us increasingly poor in spirit. Help us to be those who mourn, particularly over our own sin. Make us meek, humble, gentle. Help us to increasingly hunger and thirst after righteousness, with the assurance that we will be filled day by day. Make us merciful, make us pure in heart, make us peacemakers. And Lord, when we are persecuted, forgive us when we complain. Help us to rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is our reward in heaven. You've made us salt and light. Help us us to act as salt in a, in a world that is desperately going downhill spiritually. You've made us light. Help us to make our light shine before others that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And Lord, help us to understand Even this morning, we need a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. 
May we do what Paul said, bring every thought into subjection to Christ. And we gladly acknowledge our need of mercy and grace from heaven to do just that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with uh, a caveat and a word here so you don't under misunderstand uh, my purpose this morning. Some of you have been through divorce and know the pain of it. It is not my intention uh, to bring back the pain that you may have in your life. Uh, I grew up in a single home, some of you know that. My father was an alcoholic, and he beat my mother. And at the end of the day, I asked myself, why didn't you turn out like that, George? And there's only one answer, it's the grace of God. So there's no pride, no arrogance, I'm not looking down on anyone here as we approach this subject. There are very different views on this issue in evangelical Christianity today. We first began, uh, Grace Bible Church began in 1995 with just five uh, families. Eventually, um, three of us uh, became elders, a couple of men became deacons as well, and in those early years in the late uh, 1990s, I did teach on this uh, subject, and uh, it, it's been quite a while, and now we have seven elders. Uh, elder Men, if you're an elder, would you please stand? I want you to know how much I love these men and how they have helped me here, we spent, they can, men, you can be seated, thank you. They, they uh, before Mon and I went to Europe uh, this summer for several weeks, we met and, and we began to study this uh, subject. They read books, articles that I gave to them. Uh, Grudem, in his Christian Ethics, has a very long section on this. When we came back, they gave up some of their Saturdays as well to meet again. These are men who are serious about the Word of God, and I am deeply thankful for them. And at the end of our study, uh, we came up with, we had a doctrinal statement that was very brief on this subject, and now we have one that's a little bit longer. I have extra copies up here. It is now on the website as, as well, and uh, you're welcome afterwards if you would like one uh, on this to uh, obtain one or just go read it on uh, the website. 
So this morning, I'm just going to, the, the place to start in understanding this in the Bible is not to start with divorce. It is to start with marriage. And it is to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. So now in premarital counseling, as a matter of fact, I, I think, in my opinion, premarital counseling is one of the most important things I do. Because if you can get a young couple to understand the divine blueprint for marriage, you've gone a long way down the road for them following it. Now, it's not a, they're not bulletproof just because they understand the divine blueprint for marriage, but if they will be humble and ask one another for forgiveness, that's why I use the book, When Sinners Say I Do. But if you will do that and follow the divine blueprint for marriage, then you should expect to have a good marriage. Um, we, live, we live in a nation now that the cultural decay is just off the charts. Um, I just saw this past week one of the senators from California saying, parents have no right to determine what is taught to their children. He says, look, would you go, we don't send a patient, we send them to doctors, those who are trained to diagnose what the problem is. And so we send them to trained educators and I thought, what an arrogant statement, because your worldview is completely different from that of the Bible. Um, I just looked at the surveys that came out that uh, Ligonier does, uh, uh, and the latest one. That, now, this is not the world in general. These are professing evangelicals. The Bible contains myths like all religious literature. 26% of evangelicals agree with that statement. Religious belief is a matter of subjective personal opinion, not objective truth. 38% agree with that. Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 43% agree with that. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 50% agree with that. But here's the one that should be shocking to all of us. Gender identity is a matter of choice. 37%. Now let's go, what are we teaching in our churches? It has to start with the pulpit. It has to start with leadership. And then, and then we come to postmodernism. If you're not familiar with it, would it, it started in academic circles, names uh, like Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, Richard Rorty, deconstructionism, um, namely, uh, we've been far too certain about things in the past, and we need to be humble and recognize that there is no such thing as absolute certainty. And along comes Brian McLaren and Tony Jones, and they apply this in the theological realm. You can't 
really be certain of the Scriptures. And truth is simply a social construct. It's something that people make up. And so different groups of people will have different ideas about truth. And the Bible is revealed from heaven and say, no, that is not true. This is absolute truth from heaven. And uh, the gender dysphoria we see today, folks are not sure if they're male or female. And, and do you see the increasing numbers who have bought into that and have had surgery or chemicals? They're coming back and saying, you know what, we were told a lie. We're all messed up. Um, and then the biblical concept of marriage is cast aside in terms of simply whatever a person wants to do. Um, I, I've had students that I've had in TCS, and I, I see them, and they're just, they're, they don't get married, they just live together. So we live in a world where this is a crucial topic. And let me give some encouragement and some hope. The divine intent of God in Genesis 1 and 2 is not just to live under one roof and not to get divorced. No, the divine intent is for one man and one woman to enjoy their marriage and to glorify God. That their journey through life would be better because of their union with God and with one another. Divorce is more common today than in previous uh, generations, the 50s, what happened in the 80s and 90s when the legal uh, states uh, said no, for, no fault divorce. Um, but it's come down uh, some, and I think part of the reason for that is because um, what, what, what do we need marriage for when you come up with truth as uh, a social construct. I'm looking at an article here, I'm not going to read the whole thing, and this one was recently on the internet, and it says divorce in the, ch in the world is about 50%, and it's basically the same in the church. I want to I say that is not true. That is absolutely false. Um, there, there's a book, do I have it? Yes. Um, the Good News About Marriage by Schulte Feldham does some very good uh, statistical analysis, both um, off the Census Bureau and in general, and uh, comes down that 80% um, of people still say they enjoy their marriages and haven't been uh, divorced. And so maybe the divorce rate in the world is maybe 20%. It's not 50%. But Grudem, if you look at him in his Christian ethics, he has some very encouraging stats there. If you start with the divine blueprint for marriage, you know that to begin with. Um, then the divorce rate is maybe 4%, 5% in my own personal experience of folks that I have um, done uh, weddings for, it's very, very low. And um, when, when I do premarital counseling and am willing 
to preside over a wedding, I always ask them two questions. Or no, the first one is, are you going to marry this person for as long as you both shall live? And they say no. Then I tell them, I'm not only going to not perform the wedding ceremony for you, but you shouldn't get married. You don't have under God's understanding of marriage. And second of all, I am not naive. And I say, if things happen, and you ever decide that that is no longer true for whatever reason, I want you to give, you, give me your word that if I'm still alive on planet Earth, you will come back to me and give me the privilege of working through the issues with you. Now, I do get those calls. There's not a lot, but I do get them, and they're very painful, and sometimes working through them and forgiveness and reconciliation, but sometimes um, some uh, ha have not. Um, but the good news about marriage, debunking, discouraging myths about marriage and divorce, if you will start with God's divine blueprint for marriage, and you understand that from the get-go, and when you sin against one another in thought or word or action, you come back and you say, forgive me, there's, then there's, there's great hope. Um, there's a study done by Ian and David Stoop when couples pray together, and they did a survey. One couple in one, only one out of 1,500 couples who pray together on a regular basis ever get divorced. Now, I'm, I'm shocked at times. Um, I, I don't see it coming. And uh, friends I, I know get divorced. And it causes me more desperately in my own marriage to cry out, Lord, help me to finish well. Help me to love my wife as Christ has loved the church and given himself for it. And keep me from any arrogance here. So... Um, there, there is great encouragement when we look at what God has to say. Now, regarding how much literature is written on this topic today, it's enormous. But the text in the Bible, there, there, it, it's a fairly limited number of texts. Um, we're going to look at Genesis this morning, then the passage on Deuteronomy 24, particularly the one that the scribes and Pharisees were referring to. Lord willing, we'll cover that next week. Uh, the Proverbs uh, 2, 16 and 17, which talk about marriage as a covenant, and then Malachi 2, 14 through 16, where God hates divorce. And then we'll look at the text in the New Testament. Now notice John, the Gospel of John, doesn't even cover this topic. And you look, so... Um, uh, the, the texts, they're important texts, but I, I think they're clear on the main issues, and we will work our way 
through them in the next couple of weeks. So we're going to start this morning with the divine blueprint for marriage. We're going to talk about the pre-fall condition in Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to say what is still true of God's design. And then we're going to look at Lord willing, next week, the fall, Genesis 3, 1 through 24. What happened as a result of the fall, and what is the answer for that? We live in post-fall in a sinful world. This sinful world is going to remain from Genesis 4 all the way down to Revelation 20 when we come to uh, Revelation 21 and 22 and the curse has been lifted. What Adam and Eve lost... In their innocence, we who are believers will have regained even more because it will be impossible for us to sin when we get to heaven. And even now, the, uh, we, we have no excuse for, for sin with all that God has given to us. Now, also, when I come to Genesis 1 and 2, and the way I, I approach Genesis 1, 2, and 3, all of us as elders, we do the same thing. I know not everybody here probably uh, may be in agreement with this, but there are two books. Um, if you can always ask me questions later. I'm not going to uh, uh, cover all the different options on Genesis 1 and 2 as we come to it. One of the most helpful books, I think, is Dismantling the Framework Hypothesis as it is written, the Genesis account, literal or literary, by Kenneth Gentry. He'll work through all of the arguments against taking these as, uh, as solar days. It was, I, I don't remember how long ago it was, Tim, when we went, it, it was a while back, and they had a, uh, a conference. We went down south of uh, Houston, all the major scholars, evangelical scholars were, were there present and we heard all their presentations. Uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke was there, I, uh, so I went up to him, I, I had a course under him, I asked him to sign my Hebrew Bible, he's a very humble man, um, he did, he doesn't remember me with all the students he's had in his, uh, his life, but he, he does not hold this particular uh, view. And another one that I think is very helpful, at least has been helpful to me, the same thing. And this one interacts with a lot of the scientific paradigms that come about, um, and it's, it's by Douglas Kelly. He's a uh, uh, reformed uh, uh, Old Testament scholar. It's called Creation and Change. It's also very helpful. So I'm not going to work through all of that mat material this morning, I'm going to highlight the text that deal with the creation of mankind. As a matter of fact, when Dylan uh, taught through, he was last year. No, I, I, I'm dating myself. But anyway, he it took him a while to do it. He was still out there at the Shepherd's uh, Seminary at the time, doing his master's work, and he taught. Uh, an online course for us on survey of the Old Testament. And when he did Genesis 1, did an excellent job, 1 and 2, and he gave us a lot of resources. So if you need more resources, I'll refer you to uh, Dylan on that one. Um, 
So turn to Genesis chapter 1. I'm, I'm going to briefly overview how, and we are unanimous here at Grace Bible Church on the elders, how we understand Genesis uh, 1 through 3. Uh, basically, uh, Genesis, I take Genesis 1, 1 as the big picture. Hebrew does not have a term for universe. It uses heavens and the earth. So I take Genesis 1, 1 as the big picture. And then um, from that, there are six solar days. And on the seventh day, God rested, meaning he was finished and completed his work. Then we turn not to a contradictory account in chapter 2, but now we're going to look at what happened on the sixth day, particularly in the creation of mankind, of uh, Adam and Eve, and how does that help us today in our understanding of marriage. So I'm going to leave, put divorce on the back burner, we'll come back to that at a later study. Right now, what we're looking at is the divine blueprint of God for marriage. So come down to chapter 1 and verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, if you don't start with God and you don't start with his creation, you're going to go haywire from the very beginning. A.W. Tozer has the most perhaps famous statement on this. The most important thought that you will ever have is who do you think God is and how are you arrived at that? And so I'm starting as a presuppositionalist, as a believer. I believe this is God's word. It's inerrant. It's sufficient. And all scriptures God breathed. It's used for, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that and here's anthropos, generic, the man of God, including women, may be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. And part of that good work is marriage. And the foundation for marriage is right here in Genesis and blueprint for 1 and 2. So we see then in verse 27, and often in, now, Genesis 1 and 2 are what we call historical narrative. Occasionally you'll see a, a, a brief blurb of Hebrew poetry or parallelism, and you can, most texts will identify that for you. They'll set it off in, in the print. At least the ESV does that in 27, and when you come down to the end of 2.23, that's really uh, set in Hebrew um, a Hebrew couplet, this is, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So we see God created man, mankind, in his own image. We are created in the image and 
in the image of who? Of God. That term, Selim, in Hebrew, a king, often would have a statue erected, erected or made of himself as a symbol of his rule and sovereignty. In a similar way, mankind, humans at creation, um, are God's representative on earth, and they have a character and being corresponding to God. So, so what does it mean to be created in the image and then in the likeness of God? Um, read, read the scriptures. Until Jesus Christ came, was born of a virgin, God didn't have a body. We, we have what we call theophanies, appearances in the Old Testament. But it's, it's clear from the terms that are used. You go to uh, God... Uh, He's, he's numa. He's, he's a spirit being. And so, how are we created in the image of God? We, we have, and it's put, put in the text, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish, etc. In other words, part of being in the image of likeness of God, we are to rule as his vice regents under God following his divine blueprint. So, that does not, uh, although I, I assert that God does not have a, have a physical body, our physical body does tell us a lot about God. When it says God looks down and he sees, I can comprehend that. And so can you. You have eyes that can see. My hands can do things. I'm created by God, so are you. So these fingers tell me things about God when it says the heavens are his handiwork, the work of his, his fingers. So we're, we're learning, but basically as that image of God is unfolded in Scripture, only mankind is created in the image of God. Not the animals. This sets us apart, and it also sets us apart with the moral accountability before God that the animals don't have. So when you look at the realm, I look at it, it goes this way. First is God. Then there are angelic beings that are more powerful than man, and then mankind. But God does not provide salvation for the angels that rebelled. Hebrews 1, he provides it for the seed of Abraham. And in his image bearers, this is so crucial today, God created only two distinct, unalterable genders, both male and female. There's no alternatives. You don't, you don't go back and forth. You don't decide what you're going to be. God has determined two genders, and you are what you are at birth biologically. And so I always ask the question when I'm doing premarital counseling, I look at them and go, hey, which is better, to be a man or a woman? Now they're wondering what trick question I have up my sleeve. But some of them get it right. It goes, it's not better to be, it's, it's, it's good to be whatever God has made you. If God has made you a male, that's good. If God's made you a female, that's good. And 
Be what God has made you for the glory of God, all creation. Um, Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone who is called by my name, I created for my glory. And his purpose for believers is that we should be to the praise of his glory. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Revelation 4, 11, God is worthy to receive glory because he created all things. So how do I glorify God? It's a delight to uh, teach... Uh, one of my grandkids on Zoom, um, Latin, and we're working through the tag book, Truth and Grace. So I come up to the question, um, for the glory of God, what, what does the glory of God mean? And that's, hmm, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, it means to honor Him, to treat Him as the most important person in the universe, to obey Him, to believe His Word, to to obey Him. So that's why we're created. And then I say, God established marriage for the blessing and welfare of mankind and to bring glory to His name. One of the most difficult um, divorces, um, I, I was doing uh, the wedding ceremony. None of you know the people involved. This was early on, and uh, there, there, he's the wife had been remarried, the husband had not. It was a very bitter divorce, and so I started off with this statement: God has ordained marriage for the blessing and welfare of mankind, and he sat there, very out loud. Ha! And I just thought, how many people have had a bad taste in their, in, their, in their lives because of sin? Because of sin. But that is not God's divine blueprint. God's divine blueprint is it is for the welfare of mankind. Now, jump down to chapter 2. We see the creation of man. Um, We have the details here. Um, verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and jumped down to then uh, the creation of, of man. And God took, he, he took a thom. He, he, took, he took dirt, he took, he took dust, and he formed the physical part, and then he breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living being. So I am a dichotomist. Uh, it means man is comprised of two parts. You have a physical part, and you have an immaterial or a spiritual part. What happens at death? What happens at death is the spirit departs from the physical aspect, and one day there will be a resurrection, and there will be a continuity between that body that died, and some will be resurrected with a body to perfectly adapted to worship Jesus Christ forever. There'll be no entropy. It'll never go downhill, and others will have a body that is resurrected 
to endure the torments of hell forever without any relief. I mean, these are, these are sobering statements that the Bible clearly uh, asserts. So man is created, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, to work is the same word avad, means to worship. In other words, his work pre-fall was part of his worship of God. He enjoyed it. And to, to keep it, to maintain it. And the Lord God gave man only one prohibition, and the emphasis here is freedom. You, you can freely, count on it, surely eat of every tree in the garden. And what a delight that must have been. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For the day, of you, day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now some say, well, death had to be present already, or how, how could he know? I just say, well, God made it known to him what those things are. He didn't have to grow up. When Adam was created, he wasn't created as a two-year-old. He was created, created as a full-grown man. He didn't have to learn how to speak. God gave him the gift of speech. They could communicate with one another. And now the Lord God said, and here we have it, there are bookends around these statements and what, what they do, literary bookends. Um, I'll go back to the other one. Um, the helper corresponding to needs, he, he needs a helper corresponding to man. There's no helper corresponding to man. In other words, these literary bookends around that what takes place in between is going to help explain to us and to Adam what that means. It's not good for him to be alone. Here he is by himself. He doesn't know he needs a helper at this point. So what does God do? He says, I'll make a helper fit for him. So I'll, and, uh, but first of all, um, he gave him a little learning episode. He told him to name the animals, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper for him. In other words, God is helping him to learn that he needs help. He needs help. He needs a companion. He needs a complement, a, co a completer. And that Hebrew term is helper, is, is azer. Now, sometimes there's, there's a bit of wrong, um, particularly when I'm doing premarital counseling and I say that the woman is to be a help for, helper for the man, I can see the hair go up on the back of the neck for some and go, what, what do you mean? Um, oh, he's to be my helper. And they go, no, read the text one more time. But very helpful, understand what a helper is. This term is used 16 times in the Old Testament as the noun part and 
mostly, ten times, it's used of God himself. So it's not a derogatory term. Here's some passages, Deuteronomy 33. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help. Yahweh is your help, your azer. Um, repeatedly in the Psalms, I am afflicted and needy. Hurry to me, O God, you are my help. Same term in my deliverer. Psalm 121, a uh, couple of times, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains, for where does my help, Azer, come? My Azer, my help, comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our, our help, our Azer, is the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 146, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose help, hope is in the Lord his God. And then you could go to the verbal occurrences of this of this same noun, and begin to read those, and um, remember um, Ebenezer. So what's Ebenezer mean? Some of you know this. Evan, stone, azer, help. Stone of help. What, what, what was Samuel doing when he set it up there between Mizpah and chained and named it Ebenezer? It's, it's Thus far the Lord has helped me. And this stone, this monument I'm setting up, the Lord has, is, is my help. So when we come down to this term, it's very crucial to understand very clearly, right on, that Adam needs a helper. He needs help. He's designed by God. He was not designed by God to do everything all by himself. Not only to be fruitful and multiply, but it's not good for man to be alone. So when I look at this text, I tell you, I'm in agreement with those that say the prime purpose for marriage here at the beginning is companionship. It is companionship. Now, normally, marriages will have children, not always. But always, the intent is for not good to be alone. Adam, I have something special for you. You named all those animals. You saw it. Mr. Giraffe, Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. Hippo, Mrs. Hippo, even Mr. Snake, Mrs. Snake. This is before the fall. And uh, Adam's getting it, and he's going, hmm. What, what, what's not right about this picture? And so, what, is, what does God do? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and while he slept, took one of his ribs. Now, it's not really the word for a rib. It's, it's, it's from his side. It's, the Hebrew term is sides, and that would include um, bone and, and flesh that he's taking out uh, here. And after he did, he closed up its place with, with flesh. In other words, here's some divine surgery, taking this out, heal, healing Adam, and then the Lord God, th this piece from his side that the Lord God had taken from the man, and he made it into a woman and brought her to the, to the man. Now, I, I don't really know what Adam said when he first saw her, 
were, other than the naming here, but he must have been flabbergasted, astounded. This is no sin. And I take it that Adam um, was probably the most handsome man that ever walked upon planet Earth. And I take it Eve probably was as well. There's no sin, plus there's... there, And, and they got along perfectly. There's no need to say, honey, please forgive me, or selfishness, um, not, none of that. And so she takes them to the man to see what he will name them. And this is the perfect gift for man. God didn't make a mistake here. <laughs> oh, what happens as a result of sin that we're going to look at next, next week, Lord willing. How, how terrible is sin. But we are looking here at God's divine blueprint for marriage. And so... Matthew Henry has one of the great comments on this that's often repeated. He says, The woman is not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be protected and near his heart to be loved. Umberto Casuto um, says, Just as the rib is found at the side of the man and is attached to him, even so the good wife, the rib of her husband, stands at his side to be his helper counterpart, and her soul is bound up with his. So th th this, is, this is not denigrating the status of women. I mean, Adam was created first. We'll go to 1 Timothy 2 later on. Okay, he's the head. You know what that means? He's not a tyrant. He's to be a loving head like Christ is of the church. And he's to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And the woman is to submit, follow his leadership as she does the Lord in the church. It's all right here in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, before the fall, the divine intent. And we're going to see that God has not changed that divine intent as a result of the fall. What has happened as a result of the fall is now sin mars this relationship, and it gets hard and, and harsh. And God also has an answer for that. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe and look on him. And so we come down to 2.23 then, and Adam's poetic naming of the woman. You can see that it's usually offset in your English text uh, reflecting the poetry. Now, there's one, if you're not using the ESV, you might miss this term. It's one word in Hebrew. It's usually translated at last. And it starts out, this one, he's, he's, he's referring to Eve right there in front of him, this one, at last, finally. Where does he get that from? He got the message from naming the animals. Finally. <laughs> Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one, not the animals, not anything else, but this woman that you have created and you have given me as a gift, Adam says, she will be called Isha because she was taken out of man, Ish, 
Now, some of you, you look, man, ish. I mean, maybe that has a harsh, harsh sound there. But this is, he, he, he's just putting a feminine ending on there, and he's making the connection. And at last, finally, companionship. And they were perfect in companionship. They have different roles. Complementarianism teaches different roles. That's the position that we, we hold here at, at Grace. Um, but they're equal in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3, 7, later on we'll come to that. Husbands, Live with your wives, the expression there is katanosin, according to knowledge, the knowledge of Scripture, giving honor to the weaker vessel, but as being equal heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And I ask myself, I wonder, I wonder how many prayers in my life have been hindered because I didn't love my wife as Christ has loved the church and given himself uh, for it. So we come down to this concluding statement, and it is, therefore, therefore. Now, I take it this is God revealing to... And, and who was around to know how creation took place anyway. <laughs> One person. That's right, God himself. And so when did he reveal this to him? Now it's going to be passed on, on oral tradition, but finally at Sinai, God tells Moses, write these things down. And I take it at that time, then he puts in there, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, as a result of marriage, you, you, you don't abandon parents. You still have a responsibility to honor them, but the priority in relationship changes. It changes. So uh, husband and wife aren't to go to their parents first. They go to one another. Now, they may ask counsel if they have godly parents that would be helpful to them, but they have a different priority. In other words, who are do you love most in life? Oh, that I would love my God more than I love my wife, that my wife would love God more than she loves me. That's the proper priority. And then after that, may we give an exclusive devotion to one another above every other person upon planet Earth. Hasn't changed. Leave, hold fast, stick like glue, and become one flesh. Now, that one flesh isn't just physical flesh. Now, you're one in terms of your, your thinking, your, your intents, and, and, and this is before there's no, there's no sin, there's no fall. Look at the concluding statement. The man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. Now, if you're not ashamed, it's because you got nothing to be ashamed about. There's no skeletons in their closet. 
There, there's nothing to try and cover up and, and, and hide. So what have, what have we looked at in Genesis 1 and 2? And some say, well, um, we want to go back to Eden and have that relationship. You know what? You can't go back. You cannot go back. Look at the end of chapter 3. Verse 23, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You can't, you can't go back. You can't. What you can do is you can go forward. And it starts this way. You believe the gospel. You believe the gospel. You believe there's an answer for sin, and it's only found in Jesus Christ. And you come, and you embrace Him, and you flee to Him from the wrath to come. And you say, save me. And Jesus said it this way, come unto me. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, downtrodden by sin, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and I'll give you rest. So, that, so there it is. That's the answer. And then the admonitions, the imperatives in the New Testament begin to take on ability by the Spirit of God to do those types of things where husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church and, and wives are to be godly helpers to their husbands. But when we look at this, And the summary of the pre-fall condition, there's no mention of divorce in Genesis 1 and 2, none. And there's no need for till death do you part commitment. There's no death yet. And so the permanence of marriage, I would say, is implicit in Genesis, and it is explicit by Christ in the, pa in the passages that we looked at. So the post-fall condition... There's no return to sinless innocence. There's a priority of the gospel. What does the gospel do? You believe on him, the debt that I owe, that I could never pay. Christ has paid for me and paid for everyone who believes upon him. It's a full payment. You're not trying to work your way, trust Christ for 98% of the payment, and then do another 2% by yourself. It's a full payment. It's a pardon, but it's only received through faith. You embrace Christ and who He is, and He gives you a righteousness that He accomplished all through His life. He paid the penalty for sin. Come to Him. Why won't you come? And so if you perish, whose fault is it? You can't turn to God. And I do believe in election. I do believe in the sovereignty of God. But you can't turn to God one day and say, well, you didn't elect me. No, no then it's on your own head for refusing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and this glorious gospel breaks the power of sin. So when I fail to love as Christ has loved the church and given himself for it, I can say, first of all, I go to God and I cry out at the throne of mercy and grace. You know, mercy is because I'm in a miserable condition. I live in a world filled with misery. And I need grace. And we look forward. We want to finish well. One day God is going to even remove the presence of sin. 
there are some that say, even, even now, that uh, hell isn't that bad. Um, it, eventually, God will just extinguish everyone and uh, no, you go to Matthew 24, the wicked, and it's the same word for eternal life, is the same word for eternal punishment for the wicked. So believe upon him, believe upon him. I'm, I'm so thankful for parents that you start in the home, you teach this in the home, when I have parents who teach this in the home and, and I get the, your children to come for premarital counseling, it's easy, generally. It's, it's going to be hard for them when they find out that, you know, oh, um, one couple came back to me two weeks after their honeymoon and they go, I go, how'd it go? They go, oh, it didn't take two weeks and we had an argument, a sinful one. You know what my answer was? Wow, congratulations, you made it for two weeks without a sinful argument. But as a result of grace and mercy, this, this is what we want to teach, this is what we want to believe. If you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ladies, be godly compliments, helpers to their husbands. This is the divine blueprint. And God doesn't make mistakes in his blueprints. And if you're here without Jesus Christ, you don't have the ability, you don't have the power to do those types of things. You need to flee to Jesus Christ and trust in him. Lord willing, then next week we will look at the terrible consequences of what happened at the fall and um, how that is reversed by grace and mercy.